I think it's a natural question is, uh, why explore space? And some people have, uh, different people have different views on this. Personally, to my way of thinking, uh, part of human nature is to reach out and explore. The fact of the matter is, if man stops really stretching himself and extending himself and looking, looking out, then I think that's when civilization will begin to decline. Uh, man just has that inquisitive nature, and it's got to be satisfied. Uh, we're uh, right on the threshold of uh, really a brand new opportunity uh, to explore the uh, solar system and the universe and to increase the value of benefits back here on home. Our space lab itself, as it uh, is presently conceived, will provide us with a, a capability which grows on Skylab, expands on Skylab, and provides us with an enormous capability to conduct research in space. And of course, space exploration provides this, uh, this spiritual quality. It allows you to, uh, to go to the unknown and find what's there, and uh, hopefully by doing so, you're going to improve your lot. To have a guy there to change film, to change programs, to repoint the thing, to fix it when it breaks, to take it out and put a new one in, uh, is in many cases not only uh, the, the rewarding thing to do, but it's the cheap thing to do. First, uh, we've explored the moon, and we've now gone to explore near space, and finally uh, we're going to explore the solar system. All of this, uh, man plays an integral part. If our children and our children's children are going to enjoy the same quality of life here on Earth as we have enjoyed in the past, we're going to have to learn how to find new resources and how to manage the ones that we have more efficiently and more effectively. Of course, Apollo went on to uh, take us to the moon, but it also left us with a tremendous technology to look towards the future. And as far as Skylab is concerned, it represents a definite turning point. Welcome to Voice Print Identification. It's 2001. A Space Policy. I'm Wes. I'm Brad. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. We're looking out the window here at Clavius, and there's Space Station 5 floating around. Doing its dance. In the distance. Puts us in mind of the 50th anniversary this year of America's first space station, the revolutionary... Skylab. The fact that this was still taught you know in school yeah and science class i mean absolutely i remember seeing pictures i remember um as a class riding off to nasa and them sending us packets and packets full of very high quality images and i thought you were gonna say space ice cream i wish and that's like space ice cream being you know potentially the worst possible food for an astronaut to try to partake in <laughs> so crumbly <laughs> yeah that's a close tie with croutons love a good crouton though yeah especially ice cream flavor i bet you can make great croutons in space see that's one thing 
you know, we didn't have a culinary officer. That's the the one thing they were they missed a trick there. Of course, all the food was prepped in advance. We'll talk about that. But yeah, a, a it's like they they had to have a doctor on board. But why not a chef? Yeah. And if you're, and of course, if you're going to have a chef, you better have a doctor on board. Just in case. <laughs> but will would the yeast rise? Will the spider mm. spin its web for the in, un, for the unwary fly? And indeed, they do. But very confusedly, uh, apparently. What I heard was at first kind of going at it as best they could but adapting to zero g was easier for the spiders than it was for the crew after i think just a few weeks of them being there they were spinning perfect webs odes well for the veracity of the xenomorph yeah i'm not really looking forward to meeting an arachnid alien species anytime soon so if we can find something else that basically takes the spiders being great at being in space. <laughs> well, it's been irradiated for 100 years inside of a command service module. Oh, man. Um, I'm just imagining like some kind of energy feeding arachnids that just float as a cloud through interstellar space and attach themselves to whatever they can. <laughs> so before we get into things, let's cut to the chase. We're here for a very special reason because we have a very special guest. Victor Scherer worked for the Naval Research Lab from 1951 to 1983. Among many things that he was involved with, he helped design... Among the many things that he was involved with at the Naval Research Lab, he was called on to help design the solar cameras on Skylab. He's 103, and he's with us today. Victor Scherer, thank you so much for being with us today to share your experience of Skylab. Can you give us a little bit of background on how you got into... I was already working at the Naval Research Lab on several different projects, some of them classified. But Skylab was a very large project that I became involved in. NASA's plan was to put a spacecraft into orbit, manned by astronauts, to see if man could perform complicated tasks in space for long periods of time without physical damage. And they needed uh, some complicated things for them to do in space. They, they did a lot of study at looking and photographing the Earth, but also the sun, and that was where you came in, correct? That is correct. Uh, our mission was to provide a solar-pointed telescope to get information from the sun. And in order to do this, you couldn't just go down to the camera store and buy a lens and some film, right? The objective was to observe the sun in the ultraviolet region of the spectrum and in the soft x-ray region of the spectrum, which is not possible from Earth. The sun turns out to be a giant astrophysical laboratory. It is made up of plasma, that's uh, high temperature gases, which uh, we plan to use down here for many schemes and energy production. And we can use the sun as a laboratory to better understand how plasmas um, 
are affected by uh, electric and magnetic fields, uh, how they're moved, uh, what their properties are. There were a number of really fascinating views available from Skylab in the area of the solar study, some of them seen for the very first time by human eye. In this case, there was an eruptive prominence on the disk of the sun, which cast out through the solar atmosphere, called the corona, to very, very high altitudes, an expanding gas bubble. This was moving out through the corona at a velocity of about 300 miles per second. And we've brought back a number of uh, very fascinating uh, views of these sorts of events. And you developed three specific cameras. You developed the UV spectrograph, the extreme ultraviolet spectroheliograph, and the hydrogen alpha corona image. Those instruments were developed at the Naval Research Laboratory. Dr. Richard Tausey had been performing uh, flights of rockets left over from World War II to take spectra of the sun above the earth most of the earth's atmosphere did you what did you have to do to create the film to capture that wavelength our instruments were all operated with film that was specially developed by Eastman Kodak Corporation you had to go to Rochester New York and have meetings about that yeah, it was their research laboratory at Kodak that oh. did this work. This was all manufactured in Denver, correct, when they actually put everything together? The actual instruments were developed by uh, the Ball Brothers in uh, was that Boulder, Colorado? Boulder, Colorado. So you had to take trips out to Colorado and inspect how things were going there? Yes. This wasn't an overnight thing, right? This was months... Of this, this was months in preparation, that is correct. There was also the Joint... Joint Observing Program. And uh, there were five organizations providing instruments. One was the Harvard Observatory. One was American Science and Engineering in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Third one was the uh, Space Center in Huntsville, Alabama. And the last one was the High Altitude Observatory in Boulder, Colorado. When you were doing the Joint Observing Program, you would have to make regular trips. Right? We, we had to have meetings to get together with the five, all five organizations. You were on this, attending along with a gentleman named Gunter Bruckner, correct? Yes. You all represented the NRL at those? Yes, meetings. and usually there was one of the astronauts that attended our meetings to develop this joint observing program. Was there one who usually attended more than the others? It was Owen Garriott that almost always attended th these meetings. You got to become a little closer with Owen Garriott, didn't you? Oh yes, uh-huh. In fact, I'm looking here at a piece of pottery that's really interesting. Well, Owen Garriott, the astronauts all lived in Clear Lake, Florida, right near the, spa the uh, space center there. And Owen Garriott was one of the astronauts, and his wife operated a gift shop in town, and she made her own pottery, and she made uh, the vase that is displayed in this, in this article. It's beautiful. It's, it's so evocative of the moon's surface when we were just getting a good look at it for the first time, and then Earth mm -hmm. on top of it. There is a beautiful picture of that next to the article on their website. 
Owen Garriott was the scientist of the second Skylab mission, correct? That's correct. And he was up there with Al Bean, right? And yeah. Jack Lausma. Yes. But they had to do spacewalks, right? And all three missions had to do spacewalks. And one of the things they had to do was to, to change the film in your cameras, right? That is correct. They had to take the film out of NRL's cameras and several other instruments by EVA. Which is about the first time that, that we were doing that sort of thing, having regular EVA yes. missions, huh? Because this is kind of a more of a traditional camera. You have plates of film that you have to exchange and swap out every time a photo is exposed on it. What was the size of the film? It was a large format, wasn't it? Not yes. just 35 millimeter. No, it was a large size film. Uh-huh. Which you needed also to be able to capture the wavelengths on the scope of the image. We also know that when these large flares erupt on the sun, they uh, throw out charged particles which reach the earth in some 24 to 48 hours. Uh, these produce aurora, which we see here on earth. There's a solar array, which I was reading had to be hooked up around the edge of the Apollo telescope mount so as to not block any of the instruments there. That was performed by Jack Lausma in the, the second mission, but there was a even more daring incident with putting up a solar shield in the first mission, wasn't there? On the first mission, there were supposed to be two solar panels deployed from the main spacecraft, and during the launch, only one of those deployed, and when the astronauts, the first group of astronauts, went up to the spacecraft. Pete Conrad stood in the open door of the command service module and tried to pull that panel out uh, without success. <laughs> but also without any tethering, right? He wasn't hooked on to anything. That's right. He was just grabbing on with one hand. and <laughs> Ooh, it sends chills down my spine just thinking about that. He must have uh, really loved the adrenaline. He did. Can you give us any um, recollections of your any personal memories of that first crew, either Pete Conrad or Paul Weitz or Joe Kerwin? Well, Pete Conrad was a real daredevil, and he was a, uh, a test pilot before he joined that NASA. They all had to um, fly back and forth, too, I understand, because a lot of their training the, was, was uh, being done in Texas, but their pool, the big pool that they practiced in, a zero-gravity pool, was built by Dr. Von Braun in Huntsville. Now, did you say something about them flying? They did fly back and forth to the Cape Canaveral in Florida and also to Huntsville. They all flew their own jet planes. <laughs> That's the luxury of being a flyboy. You've got your own transport at all times, which I guess they had to be, right? All of these men had to be crack pilots. That's right. But one of them also had to be a doctor. Uh, the first mission had to have a doctor because they wanted to see the physical stamina of the astronauts, and uh, that's why they had to have an MD. They learned so many things on there, such as the circulation of the, the, the blood and zero gravity and the so-called puffy face syndrome. The second crew, 
Commander Alan Bean, scientist being Owen Garriott, and then the pilot Jack Lausma. Do you have any memories of those men? Owen Garrett and I got along pretty well because we attended all these planning meetings. In areas where you need man's flexibility and his initiative, for instance, uh, in the deployment of the solar wing on the first man mission, and on the deployment of the sail that uh, was used to shade, provide thermal shading for the workshop on the second mission, and on our mission where we had to reservice the coolant system or where we had to actually get out and unjam or move the filter wheel in the solar telescope cameras. That's where you need man. You need man up there when you need some freewheeling judgment. And the tasks in space that uh, should be assigned to man are the tasks that require him to use his mind and his abilities, his unique abilities, which uh, certainly can't be covered by programming a computer. The time of the planning meetings, you were then going back with new work and new developments every time you touch base. So how, what was the gap in time between these meetings? Was it every couple of weeks, every month, every three months, that kind of thing? Every month or so. Mm-hmm. So you, you kept a pretty steady pace at developing this. And then finally in 1973, in May, the first crew was able to launch. The third mission, from what I understand... They had to go out on a spacewalk to repair a malfunctioning antenna. That was uh, Commander Jerry Carr. The scientist on that mission was Ed Gibson, and the pilot was Bill Pogue. Do you have any memories of those gentlemen? No, but uh, I can say that after the third mission, NASA had the capability for keeping Skylab in orbit for another year. And uh, the scientists pushed very hard for this, but NASA would not do it. They wanted to spend their money on the shuttle program. So they let it splash down in the South Pacific Ocean after one year. The operational phase of Skylab was nearing a successful end. The ongoing science phase, fueled by the aggregate of data from all three missions, would last for the next several years. The solar physics community has about five years of very intensive work ahead of them. We have brought back so many thousands of pictures, and this is actually on the order of 100,000 photographs now of the sun, which they have to look through and analyze in order to better understand all of this activity that's going on on the sun. Then they retrieved the data, and you got to use the data at the Naval Research Lab, right? The principal investigators had access to all the data for two years, after that, they had to deposit in a NASA data bank. So you had a limited amount of time to work with your team on publishing and analyzing this data yourselves before it got to everybody else. Yes. And you published your findings first in 1976, is that correct? Yes. Which I, I see in there a Medal of Recognition for your presentation by the Naval Research Lab. So it obviously went very well. Thank <laughs> you. Yes, it did. Thank you. But you found out a lot of things. That You set a lot of precedents, right? You learned so much more about the sun and solar flares than we ever knew before. That is right. Skylab resulted in the first recording from space of the birth of a solar flare, which we also have a beautiful picture of that you contributed in your article on our website. That's, that's correct. So, and everyone, please have a look at all of those photos as you peruse this article because it's fascinating. 
Were you a, were you able to visit uh, any of the launches of the missions? Not of the Skylab missions, but we did uh, get to view one of the uh, other missions that NASA was. You were at a, attended an Apollo launch, didn't you? It was an Apollo launch, yes. And you were in the VIP section. We we got to sit in the VIP stands. Is this because of uh, your connections? That was because of Skylab. And you then stayed with the Naval Research Lab after that until you retired, is that correct? That's correct. So you had a total of about 35 years or so working for them, didn't you? Something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Skylab was in about the middle of my career at NRL. The Skylab astronauts control the solar observatory from this panel inside the spacecraft. Studying the sun may provide the key to an unlimited source of pollution-free energy. Skylab crews have amassed hundreds of hours of solar observations including more coronal viewing than has been gained in all recorded history from Earth eclipse observations. Aboard Skylab, the sun is unveiling faces never before seen by Earth-bound observers. Scientific textbooks will have to be rewritten because pictures like these have revealed secrets kept for billions of years by the dense, blanketing atmosphere of the Earth. Skylab picture shows an enormous mass of energy erupting from the sun's surface and extending millions of miles into space. I don't think there's any real limit to how long man can stay in space as long as he never loses sight of the fact that sometime he's going to have to go back to 1G. And if he keeps that in mind and keeps his cardiovascular system and his muscles and his bones toned for that eventuality, then there's no reason to believe that man need worry about how long he spends in space. I don't think there's a limit to that. We all know that the Earth's resources are limited. And in order to enjoy the benefits of the resources of the Earth that we have enjoyed in the past, we're going to have to learn how to manage what we have more efficiently. We're going to have to learn how to find new resources to improve our quality of life here on Earth. You've been in the Navy in World War II. Yes. Then the Navy trained you as an engineer. I was trained as a as an engineer. And in then the went to school. School to become an officer, and I was an engineering officer and had additional training at Penn State University, and was stationed on an LCI during the war. And then after the war, then you went back to school for physics? Yes. Where did you go there? Ohio State University and then the University of North Carolina. Oh, I didn't know you had studied at UNC. Was that at Chapel Hill? Chapel Hill. Did you get a separate degree there? I got an advanced degree there. Okay, yeah. After witnessing all of the space program through the beginning, the Kennedy administration up through the Apollo and then into the 70s. What was your feeling about the space program at that time? I thought it was very good. 
Are you encouraged by the advent of private space companies? and Any way to get it done. Do you have any particular hopes that you'd like to see from NASA? I think they're on track. What they're doing is just fine. And do you ever foresee the possibility? I know that um, Lockheed Martin are working now on nuclear-powered space propulsion. Do you think that's a possibility or do you think that's a dead end? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) Anything else you'd like to add for the listeners? No, thank you. Well, uh, can I just say on behalf of the listeners, thank you. Thank you for everything you've done in the world of space travel and for our country and is such an amazing part of this last century. Thank you. One of the real triumphs of Skylab is that it basically took a situation gathering both the limits of what was possible and the possibilities Uh, presented by incredible technological developments and put them together in a program that produced tremendous benefits in science, education, what spaceflight is all about. So it's a stepping stone. It was the stepping stone between the Apollo program and then later definitions of what spaceflight would mean for the United States. From that launch pad tomorrow morning, three rookie astronauts leaving their 13 children behind take off to spend Christmas orbiting the Earth. Their mission, man's longest stay in the hostile environment of space, Skylab 3, an open-ended flight that could last as long as three months for a mission crowded with experiments measuring the crew's physical responses and giving man the best view he's ever had of a visitor from outer space. And our very special thanks to Mr. Victor Sheriff for talking to us today. He is a national treasure. From the 171 days that Skylab was occupied, a tremendous store of information was returned. But of all the data, one finding stands alone. Human beings can live and work efficiently for long periods in the weightless environment of space. Such a finding was crucial to performing extended manned missions in the future and therefore vital to our future role in space. Such was the legacy of Skylab. From Clavia Space, this is Brad. And I'm Wes, signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye.